You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. This evening we're going to go straight into the book of Revelation. And we're going to consider it in two parts tonight. So I hope you've got uh, your Bible open and ready because we're going to be dipping into various sections from that wonderful book, that last book of the Bible. I'm not a great one for sleeping when I'm traveling. As I referred to this morning, I'm just far too nosy. I like to see what's going on. I like to take in what's going on round about me. But I have been on holidays and mission teams and different trips when maybe there were those in my company, traveling companions, who seemed to be able to nod off even, as they say on the proverbial clothesline. I can think of one instance in particular while well, traveling through Central Europe by car, and one of my companions was sound asleep, but he woke up just as our car was being searched at a border checkpoint. The country we were coming from and the country that we were about to enter had no love for each other. And so the military presence was ominous. My sleeping colleague awoke to the slamming of car boot, the thud of the soldier's boots, and then those strong foreign accents coming from some tight-looking soldiers fully equipped with their semi-automatic weapons. And my colleague woke with an absolute start. He didn't know where he was as he'd completely lost his bearings in the land of Nod. And that's how it can feel when we land in the book of Revelation. Previously, after considering a series of letters written by Paul and John and James and Peter, to suddenly then turn to Revelation, it appears that we awake with a jolt in a foreign land, surrounded by words and pictures that we just don't understand. And yet this book is here for us as part of God's word for our good, inspired by God's spirit. So what are we to make of the book of Revelation? Well, this evening we're going to divide the talk into two. And first of all, I'm going to try and give you some, some tips, some, some simple guidance that will enable us to read this book and get the most out of it. And as we begin, let me help you learn the language of Revelation. So by the end of tonight, you might at least be able to speak it a little bit more fluently or even read it. First of all, we need to see that it is written in a style that hasn't been used for nearly 2,000 years. It's known as apocalyptic literature. It was all the rage during the first century. And this kind of writing deals with big, grand images and seeks to lift the lid on heaven itself. Now, the word apocalypse is actually quite an easy word. It's the Greek word for to reveal, from which we get the word revelation. And it appears in the very first verse of this very first chapter in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation or the apocalypse from Jesus Christ, which God gave him and so on. So these were visions that were given to John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, as he serves time as a convict on the colony of Patmos, 40 miles off the coastline of Turkey. And John, we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, was there because of preaching the word of God. John is a prisoner. He's a persecuted Christian. 
And the Roman authorities presumed that by sending him there, it would stamp out the worship of Christ and the boldness of the ever-growing church who declared Jesus as Lord rather than Caesar. Because this is not the kind of writing we're familiar with, it's not a letter or a poem, it's not history or a story like the rest of the Bible, the images can often scare us off over these 22 chapters. But we read in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, do you see it there? Let's read it together. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John's aim, we read, is to reveal Christ in all his glory, using layer upon layer of images from the rest of the Bible. For example, do you remember making those collages in art class in primary school? Or maybe even some of you did it for GCSE art at school. You know, you take a bit of torn fabric here, or a newspaper ripped out here, or a photograph that's torn there, and a little bit of cloth over there, and tissue paper there, and you pile all the bits of various material together, and it ends up forming one picture in the end. And that's what John is doing here. He cuts and pastes from various biblical pictures. He takes a line from the Psalms, an event from the Gospels, a promise from Genesis, a picture of the tabernacle from Exodus, and a photograph of one of the prophets here, and then forms them into this bold, colorful mosaic. I remember feeling very rebuked at college when we were struggling to grasp Revelation in our New Testament classes, and the New Testament lecturer just shook his head and in his soft Scottish accent said, boys, 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 do you not know your Old Testament? You see, the pieces are all there. Revelation relies almost entirely on what has gone before. That's why it's the last book of the Bible. We need to know what's gone before if we're to make sense of what appears here. So what goes in to make these various parts? Well, that's where we need to see the big picture, the big picture. Look at verse 1 again. Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. So any sermon you hear, or any book that's based on Revelation that tells us more about dates and times than Jesus is a misinterpretation, and I would warn you off that. Revelation tells us about the victory of the Lamb in chapter 17, verse 14. More specifically, it tells us about the Lamb that achieved the victory by means of his death and resurrection. If you're still in chapter 1, look down at verse 18, where we read Jesus speaking, saying, I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And it's all about his victory that's going to be consummated on his return to earth. We read that in chapter 11, verse 15. His victory march has begun, but it's not yet reached its completion. I used this illustration the other Thursday night at Paul's for prayer to use an historical example. In the Second World War, the Allied troops invaded Europe and were able to gain a decisive victory against the Nazi regime in June 1944 in what became known as D-Day. But it was not until 336 days later that the war in Europe came to the end on VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. 
The victory was in hand. The decisive turning point had taken place. But during that long year, troops were still lost. Atrocities were still committed. Villages in France and Belgium were still destroyed. And chaos occurred until the decisive date in May 1945, when hostilities in Europe ended, the guns were laid down and the tanks stopped rolling and peace was signed. And that is what Revelation describes in all sorts of layers. It's this time between D-Day and V-E-Day, or V-C, Victory and Christ Day. You see, we know, and we're about to celebrate it in this Easter week, Christ has already conquered Jesus has defeated sin and death and hell and reigns victorious in heaven there at the Father's right hand thanks to an empty cross, an empty tomb, a sinless Savior. Jesus is the undisputed champion. But the devil continues to deceive. Satan still lies. The tail of the dragon that we read about in Revelation still continues to sweep back and forth, but he does so as a wounded, fatally wounded animal wanting to cause as much trouble with that tail as it were, because he knows his days are numbered. Revelation is also written in seven parallel sections. Each section of Revelation covers the same time frame between the two comings of Jesus. You know, the coming of Jesus when he was born at Bethlehem, he returns to heaven, but we await his second coming. But it looks at it all from different angles. The best illustration I can think of these days is, you know, video replays are all the thing, aren't they, these days in sport? Whether it be watching it in match of the day or the TMO in rugby or, or whether it be VAR in football or whether it be the third umpire in cricket or Hawkeye in tennis, it's, it's, it's all from different angles. And there need to be loads of different cameras and they all record the same event but looking at it from a different perspective. And that's exactly what's going on in Revelation. It's the same period of time. These are the last days between Jesus returning in heaven and Jesus coming back from heaven. That's the same period of time, only from all these different camera angles. Roger Crooks explains it this way. The seven sections are Jesus among the seven golden lampstands in chapters 1 to 3. The book with seven seals that are opened in chapters 4 to 7 the blowing of the seven trumpets in chapters 8 to 11, the attack by the dragon and his angels, his agents, the beasts and the prostitute on the woman and her child, chapters 12 to 14, the seven bowls of God's judgment in chapters 15 and 16, the fall of the prostitute and these beasts in chapters 17 to 19, and then finally the judgment of the dragon on the new heavens and the new earth. Seven different camera angles of the same period of time. But let me make it easy for you. Each of those visions has four common themes. Here they are. The Lord's triumph over all, the church's continual struggle here on earth, God's judgment on evil, and the joy and security of heaven. Listen, we can read a whole lot of things online you can watch many's a YouTube clip that tells us that such and such a chapter in Revelation relates directly to war in the Middle East, the rule of Hitler, Mussolini, Kim Jong-un, or even Donald Trump. 
the European Union, the United Nations, COVID-19, barcodes and groceries, Brexit, nuclear weapons. We could go on and on, and you fill in your own blank from something you've watched recently. But the commentator, William Hendrickson, reminds us in his excellent book, it's probably the best commentary on Revelation, called More Than Conquerors. He says this, These kinds of explanations, and others like them, must be dismissed. For what possible good would be suffering and severely persecuted Christians of John's day, having derived from specific and detailed predictions concerning European world or 21st century conditions? Do you hear what Hendrickson's saying? Who was it received revelation? It was the first century Christians who were really struggling. So the interpretation isn't going to be Donald Trump or COVID-19 or barcodes and groceries. It can't be. Yes, all of those things I've just mentioned do fit into one of the seven layers somewhere, but that's not what was originally intended. It's the four things on the screen. The Lord's triumph, the church's struggle, God's judgment on evil, the joy and security of heaven. That's how we're to read the whole book of Revelation. And then this revelation was given to believers and to the church in the first century just as much as it's given to us to read and respond to today. So that leads us on to another part. Revelation is written using symbolism. Let me give you an overview of the main things to look out for. Well, you've got the devil has three agents. You've got the beast out of the sea, which represents namely kings and governments who are opposed to the church and the Christian faith. And we see that throughout history, don't we? Then you've got the beast of the earth, representing false religion and anyone who tried to deceive God's people from within or outside the church. And we've got the prostitute, which represents all that is in the world that attracts and distracts the church and Christians from the truth. A seduction that looks beautiful, but draws us in and then spits us out. In other words, they emphasize Satan's attack on the bodies, minds, and hearts of God's people. And that's how God's people will always be attacked and tempted, through bodies, or maybe attacked physically, violently, sickness, sadness, through our minds, tempted, hearts, being drawn to other things. And it's there that when we consider the much-talked-about mark of the beast, isn't it? Have a look at Revelation 13, verse 16. We're not to look there for the literal marks in people's hands or arms or foreheads. It's not going to be there in terms of chips or actual stamps. It's symbolic language that we get to think if we think of it this way. Throughout the Bible, what is the right hand or the right arm? It's always a reflection of people's actions. What's the forehead? It's all to do with people's thinking. So in people's actions, the Bible uses that right hand to describe what we do, and our thinking, the forehead, are controlled by any idea or any philosophy that's opposed to Jesus Christ, you could say the beast has stamped himself upon their lives. That's what you would say. The beast has taken control of their minds. The devil has distracted us, persuaded us, confused us. And so the symbols refer to the principles of human behavior that are anti-Christian in any way. And God's activity throughout history between Jesus' return to heaven and his ultimate return to earth. So these are all outlined as broad principles that will happen across all of time in all sorts of places, but do not necessarily relate to one particular event. For example, 
the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6. You've got the rider of the white horse. It's evidently Christ and the conquering power of the gospel as it penetrates hearts and minds across the world and redeems homes and communities. Then you've got the rider of the red horse, which is war in, Gen in, in sorry, Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. The black horse, Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6, it's famine. And the pale horse, Revelation 6, 7 and 8, it reflects death, that pale, drained, lifeless look. Now, this is not about a specific war or a specific famine or a specific time or a specific death, but the principle that operates across history. Whereas in any place, at any time, there could be war or famine or death. Between these two comings of Christ, known as the last days, Jesus' kingdom will advance and Satan's kingdom will retaliate. And what about some of the numbers that we read about, the repeated numbers all the way through Revelation? Well, they're not literal. Again, they're symbolic. They're representative. Every time you come across the number three, it reflects the Trinity. It, 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 it's God. Whenever we read about the number four, it represents creation. We talk often, don't we, about the, the four corners of the earth or the four points of the compass. Seven. Seven is the perfect number. Seven days of creation. The repeated number in Revelation is seven. It shows that something is perfect. Ten. Always completeness. Twenty-four. Well, that represents the church. You've got the twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, the twelve apostles in the New Testament. God's people across all time, across all generations. Then you've got a number like 666 in Revelation 13, 18. What is that number saying to us? What, what does that mean? Well, it's not complicated. In Revelation, if seven is the perfect number, God's perfect number, what is the number six? It's perfection minus one. The symbolic number is telling us that everything contrary to God always falls short. Six, six, six. Three times over, it fails, it fails, it fails. It can never reach seven. It's less than perfect. And anything less than perfect is doomed to failure. It's not to be found in charts or drugs or secret codes or reading it into people's names. 666 is an encouraging reminder to Christians that no matter how powerful the forces of evil seem to be or how under pressure God's people are, the devil is done for. He will never reach perfection. He will never succeed, for Christ has the victory. Revelation then also has significance, doesn't it? significance. This is the Bible's final book, and it wasn't given for us to fight over. It wasn't given to us to start new churches over. It wasn't given to us to speculate about, or rather, it was given to help Christians live, to help Christians survive in a society that is often anti-Christian. In Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus addresses the church directly. Even though there are seven congregations referred to, he speaks about them as one church. It's an open letter to all of the church, to all of history. And every one of us needs to read it. For there we read about their trials and their joys. It's there to remind us that the church throughout all of history can be distracted, can be lukewarm, can be persecuted, and needs comfort. Jesus, the king and head of the church, speaks to his church, and he wants us to know how to live. Again, William Hendrickson writes, 
in the main, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to comfort the church in its struggles against forces of evil. It is full of help and comfort for persecuted and suffering Christians. To them is given an assurance that God sees their tears. In fact, let me reassure you tonight. Have a look for a moment at Revelation 7 and verse 17, where we read together there, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them in the springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. It's repeated again in chapter 21, verse 4. And we also read that the prayers of God's people are influential in world affairs. Turn back to Revelation 8, verses 3 and 4, and see something absolutely stunning. Revelation 8, 3 and 4. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. And then we read later on in that same chapter of the trumpets being blown that is the warning blast and God gets to work again in our world. As a result of the prayers of God's people, and we also read in Revelation that their death is precious in his sight. Their final victory is assured in chapter 15, verse 2. Their blood will be avenged. Any Christian who has lost their lives in the cause of Christ, their blood will be avenged. Their lives will be hidden with Christ forever. And he governs the world in the interest of the church. As someone who serves the church, I find this immensely reassuring. Look at chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, how much the church of Jesus Christ means to him. Chapter 5, verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one at a heart, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which were the prayers of God's people. And he's going to take a people to himself. As we think of the glorious hope of the second coming, our hearts should be filled with joy. Our souls should be consumed with a breathless impatience. Our eyes should attempt to pierce the dark clouds which veil the future, hoping that the glorious descent of the Son of Man will burst upon our view. But as we long for an end to our suffering tonight, as we pray for the persecuted church and those who are suffering really badly. As we pray for those in our congregations who are going through days of sadness, as many of us walk through the valley of tears, we need reminding, just as John is at the start, that the mighty King, that the resurrected Lord Jesus, our lovely Lord Jesus, is with us and walking among us. Turn with me to Revelation 1, verses 12 to 20, and see this and be reassured by it. The very first chapter, Revelation 1, verses 12 to 20. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And like any of us who would have seen that, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Friends, tonight, our Lord Jesus is the one who should take our breath away in his wonderful, glorious, majestic, heavenly beauty. And we should all fall on our faces as though dead. But when we acknowledge our weakness before him, when we acknowledge our sin and our waywardness before him, it's then he places his right hand upon us. It's then he reaches down and lifts us and says those glorious words, do not be afraid. For I have defeated everything that will do you harm. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. But look, as he shows the nail marks in his hand, now, now I am alive and I hold all of history in my hands. Friends, Christ, Christ is enough for us. That's what Revelation teaches. So we've discovered together that Revelation does tell us that Christ is enough for us. But as we come to the end of Bible Fresh, our big Bible overview, maybe you're wondering how all of the threads of Genesis to Revelation tie up. What's the link between Genesis and Revelation and everything in between? Well, turn with me as we just finish off tonight to a couple of chapters near the end of the book. First of all, to Revelation 21. Have it open in front of you as we see what God has done and is doing in bringing this glorious book, his Bible, to a wonderful conclusion. What we discover, first of all, as we near the end of the Bible, is that God's kingdom has come. Finally, God's people are in God's place. Let's read chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Finally, God's people living under God's rule. For we read also in verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you remember where Genesis began? Adam and Eve failed in this regard, in the garden. The kingdom of Israel then faltered throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But finally, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we see God's people living under God's rule in God's place. 
That's how it should have been in Israel, God's people under God's rule in God's place. But they sinned, they messed up, they did not reflect the image of God. The curse that entered God's kingdom in Genesis 3 has now been reversed. Remember when Adam sinned, God cursed the the whole world, leading to life on earth full of thistles and thorns and sweat and battling with creation, fearful of sickness and death and daily temptation and sin. Life in this world stings. We're actually going to be thinking more about that on Thursday night. We're going to be thinking about the thorns of this world. But in this new heaven and in this new earth, you see, it's made renewed. It's not just heaven up there. He's going to come and he's going to tear the whole thing up and restart, but it's going to be earth, but not as we know it. It's going to be heaven, but not as we already know it. Sorrow and sadness and death, we read in verses 3 and 4, will be removed. All gone. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things passed away. And you see, that means that paradise has been restored. John's description of the holy city in the next chapter, chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, tells us this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are there for the healing of the nations. not that incredible? It was a tree that brought them down in the Garden of Eden. But here we have all these trees, and they're continually bearing fruit. It's it's harvest season every month of every year. And the leaves of those trees are for the, the healing of the nation, not the cursing of the world, but the healing of the nation. Everything is perfect. The paradise that was lost through Adam's disobedience has now been restored by and through Jesus all through another tree that stands at the center of the Bible, the tree of Calvary. And again, as we see, the covenant is being fulfilled. It's a word and a phrase that kept cropping up. And David helpfully drew our attention to that many times as we went through the Old Testament together. The covenant that was made, that divine and enduring promise that first appeared back in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Do you remember what happened there? Abraham plucked from obscurity. Abraham told that if he was to be used by God, he he was going to get a, a new place. His name was going to be great. He was going to be a blessing to the nations, a people, a place the size of tremendous blessing. Here is a God who takes our cursing in order that we might receive his blessing. The God who stepped into this world so that we might receive his heaven. And through Jesus all peoples on earth will be blessed. Here in this last book of the Bible, in a chapter like chapter 5 that we had read for us at the start, or chapter 7, it is fulfilled, and we see this great crowd that no one can count. I was thinking about this. You know, see, trying to fill in those census forms? There's going to be no need for census forms in heaven. There's going to be too many people to count. Such is God's grace this fallen world. The paradise that was lost in Eden is restored, resurrected, made new in Revelation, and there the Lord himself shields us from anything that would do us harm. 
It made me think that the best fairy tales always have happy endings, don't they? Disney's made a fortune out of it for, for years. But as all of us grow up and we mature, we become increasingly skeptical that such a thing exists. And yet in our heart of hearts, we long that it really did. But friends, it really does. Draw back a couple of pages in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. And in Revelation chapter 19, there we read the first and foremost, good always triumphs. Look at chapter 19, verse 6. Good always triumphs. The song goes up, Hallelujah, for our Lord Almighty reigns. The song celebrates the day when God will be the only power reigning over the world. When there will be no more evil to worry about, no more death or curse or sickness or sin, the Lord Almighty will reign in unopposed glory. And when you think of all that is good, who do you think of? Well, the Bible takes us immediately to the Father ruling through Christ the Lamb by the power of the Spirit. Everything that is good. But then secondly, you know, whether it be in any films, but definitely in the Bible and definitely in all of the world, the bad guys get what's coming to them. God's justice will be a key part of these future celebrations. According to Revelation 19, verse 2, look at it there. True and just are his judgments. And God's judgments will burn against the devil and anyone who served him or went his way. Look at verse 20 of this same chapter. They were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Friends, be warned, there is an eternal judgment for the devil and all who choose to follow his way rather than Christ and his way of salvation. The Bible does not conceal this. The Bible celebrates this. But notice this, in an ultimate sense, the human race isn't either the good guys or the bad guys. We are there in between God and the devil, and we need to make sure that we are found on the right side. So how do we ensure that we belong with what is good and that we find ourselves secure with God. Well, it all centers around a wedding. A wedding. Yeah, you heard me right. And it's a wedding that's outlined in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter. Chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. Have you ever wondered why so many happy endings in movies end with a wedding? Why are our stories so often entwined in the guy and the girl and all the twists and turns of will they, won't they? Well, the Bible says that all of history is actually heading towards a wedding. Our future is an eternal marriage feast where we will celebrate the union of Jesus with his people forever. Jesus is described here as the lamb because he is the great sacrifice who died for our sins, the great atoning lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the other hand, his people are called the bride because they're united to him in marriage. This is the key to whether we end up with God or not. It's the one question that will define your life for all eternity and my life for all of eternity. Are you, am I, united to Jesus. You see, in a marriage, you pledge to be one with your spouse, don't you? You share a common name. 
a common home, common money, or common debts, common possessions. In short, you share a common life together. And in Revelation 19, we are told that Jesus wants to share everything with us. And if we say, I will, I will to Jesus, we will share everything with him. Such oneness means that he takes our debts, our sins, and pays for them at the cross. That is why Jesus died as the Lamb. He died because he loves us way too much to watch us sink and go under in our own debts. On the cross, he says, let your debts be my debts. Let your death be mine. I will pay. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave to say to us, I have taken your debts. You can have my riches. I have taken your death. Here, take my life. And this is beautifully pictured in these verses in verse 8, that we receive from him fine linen, bright and clean, given to the bride. I dare say there aren't too many grooms who go out and buy the wedding dress for their bride. There are too many brides who just wouldn't take that these days. They spend days, weeks, months looking for the perfect dress for that day. But here, because we do not know how filthy our dress is, we need someone to give us a perfect dress. And he buys it. He hands it to us. And he says, dress in this now. You're perfect in me. Jesus provides us with a perfect covering and it's as a gift. None of us deserve to wear white. We are all naturally unclean due to our sin. But on that ultimate wedding day, in the presence of God, Christ's people will be clothed in dazzling white. Those who say, I will, to Jesus, instantly receive that righteous covering. He takes our filth and we receive his purity, free and forever. This is how we share in this happy ending together. It's when we cross over from being the bad guys and on our way to hell to being caught up with this good God and his eternal triumph through his Lamb. Anyone who says, I will, to Jesus, marries, crosses from rags to riches, a tragic ending to eternal inheritance, which only leaves us with one response, doesn't it? Singing. Singing. That's the theme of Revelation. Four times in this chapter alone, in chapter 19, the people cry out, Hallelujah! It's the Hebrew for praise the Lord. And that is what we are built for. Celebration, singing, praise. When an artist has delivered a spine-tingling performance, when your team lifts the trophy at the end of the season, when the concert of a lifetime concludes on the crescendo of the band's best-known anthem, we rise to our feet, we pour out our praise, we sing and shout and cheer at the top of our voices. It's ecstatic and unbridled joy. And friends, that is where creation is heading. Under God, this world is straining, as it were, on tiptoes towards the great hallelujah chorus. That day when Jesus returns, 
His people will shout for joy because on that day, God will triumph. The bad guys will get what they deserve and we will celebrate at the ultimate wedding because we, the bad guys, will have received something we did not deserve. And friends, we won't just sing. We won't be able to stop ourselves singing. For the Bible has a happy ending. Desi Alexander, the uh, lecturer in biblical studies up in Union College that many of our students sit under, in his book, From Eden to the New Jerusalem, finishes his book in this beautiful way. And with this, I finish. Although our future experience of life will have something in common with the present, it will also be radically different. Everything that detracts from experienced life to the full will one day be totally eradicated. Then and only then shall we know life as God intends it to be. Then and only then shall we truly grasp the immensity of the grace of God whose love for rebellious, errant human beings was demonstrated through the gift of his own unique son. Then and only then shall we know God fully in all his majestic glory, in all his splendor, with such a prospect in view, what more could any of us desire? He alone is worthy. 